Hey, welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Check us out on the web at missiodeschicago.com. Ephesians 5, this is our teaching passage for the day, uh, verse 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Uh, if, if you would, let, let's pray one more time. Um, if you're someone who prays, I'd love to just invite you into that. If you don't, um, please just, uh, yeah, just seek a, a place of, of meditation. But uh, we invite you to pray as well, maybe if it's for the first time in a while. And um, God, we just pray that your presence would be here. We pray that you would speak to the church, uh, that you would love this community and that every single woman and man and child here would uh, know the depths of your love for us, that you are committed to us, and that your love has power for us. And so, God, I just pray that you would use my weak, um, just frailty of my mind, my heart. Um, Would you just take the things I've prepared this week, and, and hopefully they make sense. Um, and if you would, just take a moment of silence. I don't know if you had a moment of silence this weekend, but just to be still. Would you just take a moment of silence and say, God, would you speak to me today? Um, maybe it's through another person, through Scripture, or even just through His Spirit. Um, maybe it's a gut feeling that you get. Um, but would you ask God to truly speak, and would you have the confidence to, to know that it's Him? Well, God, we love you. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. You guys can have a seat. Uh, we just started last week a new series uh, titled, When Church Signs Lie. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen church signs. They seem to be advertising something clever, something to try to get you inside the building, um, usually promoting something. Uh, maybe Jesus is inside this building um, or something, something just to kind of hopefully uh, attract you to the church. Um, but often they're full of cheesiness and, and lies. Um, and so uh, we wanted to do a series of what is the church. Church is not a building but a people. And we wanted to look at the four metaphors in the church. Last week we looked at this metaphor of temple, that we are God's presence, that God's presence dwells in you, that he lives in you, and that he wants you to extend that presence wherever you go into dark and broken places of injustice. Uh, and, and then this week, we want to look at this metaphor called the bride that he uses. We'll get into that in a minute. It's kind of a hard metaphor to, that probably hits you with just as much like um, gravitas as like a romantic comedy, right? Just hearing, oh, I'm the bride, you know, um, probably feels a little um, over-promised, under-delivered, um, but hopefully we'll get into this. When I first moved to Chicago, uh, I would tell people, I'd meet people, and they'd say, well, why did you move here? I'd say, I moved here to plant a church. And I got a lot of different questions and things about that. Some of the things that people would say is, why on earth would you want to do that? <laughs> Sometimes people would say, well, what kind of spiritual community is this? Is it a Buddhist church or a Christian church? Some people from a Catholic context would say, is that even legal? How do you, you can't plant a church. Who gives you the authority to do such a thing? All these questions and feedback and responses, they can really all be summarized by skepticism 
and a sense of distrust often. And I would say the state of the church has had a really rough go recently. Uh, the Catholic Church is probably one of the most largest denominations in which is shrinking the quickest rate of any church. Recently rocked by another scandal, things in Pennsylvania, in which just left, this kind of scandal has just left people in tears, left people completely rocked by the church by sex scandals within priests within Pennsylvania and the Catholic Church. This isn't just within the Catholic Church. This has bled in and over to the non-denominational evangelical church. Even in our own city, we have Willow Creek, which has influenced, if, if, I don't know if you're anybody who's in their 30s and over and has been in the church for a while, you've probably been influenced by the, the movement of Willow Creek, in which they're dealt with a scandal where Bill Hybels received reports of inappropriate sexual relationships, and now, as a result, all the elders of the church and the two lead pastors have resigned under the way this is handled. It just wrecks you just to see things like this. It's hard to underestimate this, the, the influence of this church, but yet you see leaders fall. Southern Baptist Church denomination, a series of just bomb reports of just crisis after crisis, seminary professors having scandals, senior leaders, seminary deans treating women horribly. So we look at the church, and then you just, that's just modern. You think of the church, you think of the Crusades, the Holy Wars, racial segregation, and tons of oppression. And so as a pastor, it's hard for me to stand here before you today and say, yes, these stories are true. The church has lost its attractiveness. Jesus said this, that if salt is good for preserving what is good, the church has lost its saltiness. And what good is salt if it's lost its saltiness except to be thrown to the ground? And so I think in our culture today, the church has kind of lost its saltiness. It's lost its uh, uh, sense of preserving presence of God. It's, it's lost its effectiveness. So how do we get it back? The church is no longer seen as good for education. No longer it's good to be seen as something good for the public square. Uh, it, it is, it is it's basically been trampled underfoot. But the great hope of followers of Jesus is this, is that the, the Christian tradition actually contains within itself the corrective resources to critique itself and call itself back to its purposes. The beauty of Christianity is that actually there's tra the tradition of all the prophets of the Old Testament that speak truth to the church, saying you must come back to the way that you were originally designed to live. And so we are one of the only spiritual traditions that has such a resource. Jesus said, looks at uh, the scribes and Pharisees, and he says, woe to you. Woe to you, you hypocrites. You travel twice as far and across this land to only make a convert twice as much of a son of hell as you are. I don't know if you think about that, but that doesn't sound like good news. So Jesus takes this even one step further and critiques religious leaders who are corrupting the church. And against, uh, instead of being agents of light, these people have become agents of darkness. And Jesus is the one bringing this rebuke. So can the church become good for the world again? And so I would say last week we looked at, each week we're looking at like a thing that cripples the church. Last week we talked about powerlessness, that there's no power sometimes in the church. We don't experience the same things that happen in the New Testament of miracles and, and people coming to know God and people sharing their possessions freely without any greed like we read about. This week we look at the hypocrisy that is crippling the church. Uh, that hypocrisy is one thing that 
can be very disillusioning. And I think we can live in this sense of distrust. I mean, who can, I don't know about you, but it's kind of like, how can you trust anyone anymore? I mean, you just think about, I just think about my own favorite, like, whatever, mentors that are, whether people I know or people I don't even know. Like, and I just think of, I mean, just throw out somebody like N.T. Wright. All right, so N.T. Wright's this, this author, and I'm like, yeah, I trust N.T. Wright, maybe 75%. But how do I know like, what he's, who he really is behind the scenes? And some of you probably even feel that way about someone like me as a, as a pastor. Like, yeah, Brian seems like a nice guy. I probably trust him like 75%. You know, it's like maybe, maybe 80, hopefully 80. And then, <laughs> and so there's this sense of like, who could I really even trust? You know, I even think within our own, communicate, our own congregation, you think about your own people in relationships, like Robbie's another elder of mine, and so I was like, yeah, Robbie, you know, N.T. Wright gets 75, but like, Robbie, maybe 85%, maybe a little higher than that, because I know you, I see you, I see you with your wife and kids, but there's this sense of always distrust, because I think we've been, we've had so many times where we've been had broken promises, promises broken to us, and then we relate those brokenness to God, and we think that God is breaking these promises to us. And so we take these, these, these the fact, I, I used this quote um, in the spirit of Eugene Peterson who just passed, that the church is not a, it's not a museum of saints, it's a, it's a hospital for sinners in which one of those sinners is called to be the pastor. And so we are a community here of a brokenness, and so we must remember that, and that we are also called to become the church, to be a place that we can remove our cynicism and trust that God has good to do through the church again that he still has a heart for the church. 59% of millennials who grew up in the church have left the church. According to the research at Fuller Youth Institute, one out of every two young people in America who grew up in church will leave the church after turning 18. So why bother with the church anymore? Is the church really the answer to the questions that the complex lives of people in Chicago are asking? Karl Barth says this, that this is the heart of the church. The church exists to set up in the world a new sign which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts it in a way which is full of promise. So God is setting up this alternative community that contradicts the world, not to condemn the world, but proposes another way, an alternative community that says this way is full of promise. It's a way that's full of promise. And what I want to do to you do today as a communicator is just I want you to, to bring you into God's feelings for the church. That's my hope for you. His heart for the church and bring you into the hope and the possibility of what God can do in the church. And so that I, I pray that you would restore faith in what God wants to do through the church. And so no matter how dark it is, I still believe in the promise of the church. And the picture I want to talk about today is this picture and metaphor that God uses throughout the Bible called bride. And that word bride, in a sense of marriage, God, when he looks at you and looks at us, he sees a marriage. And if you think about the power of that metaphor, a lot of you think of God as all these other metaphors in Scripture, which are great, but they're empty without this metaphor. You think about a God as king, that's great, but a king's heart isn't really like torn when his citizens disobey him. You think about God as shepherd, that's great. But when a sheep goes astray, the shepherd's kind of like, eh, he's just sheep. But when you think of God as groom, and, and, and his sense of love for you, his sense of like desire for you to dis- display love upon you, it's something completely different. It shows his feelings. This passage we read earlier in Ephesians 5, 
It's the picture of God's feelings for the church. This passage is usually read to argue about gender roles in the church or read at a lot of marriage seminars and conferences. But Paul is like intermingling different metaphors, but you see the rich language as he's trying to talk to husbands and wives. He's also obsessed with the fact that God looks at us and calls us his bride. Um, and so, so the, this, this beautiful picture, look at it, he says that Christ, Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And so Paul's writing this text. He's staggered that God would call us his bride. The Bible begins with a wedding in the garden and ends with a wedding. It begins with a human marriage and ends with a divine marriage in which God portrays us at a wedding feast, his people. And we are not the guest. We are the we are the bride of honor. Now, some of you are looking at me with like blank stares. Let me just, guys, if you're the bride of Christ, if girls can be called, the, women can be called the sons of God in Scripture, which that word sons is meant to connotate inheritance in that context. It's meant to connotate that you have an inheritance. We are also the bride of Christ. We are meant to be the sense that we are the loved ones of God. This is the identity that our city labors for. It is identity that is in us, that we are his loved ones, that God wants a relationship with us so intimate, so passionate, so committed, so permanent that he wants with us. In fact, in the Bible, when God calls Israel out of Egypt in Exodus, a lot of times we hear deliverance from the empire of Pharaoh, which is true. We talk about that a lot here at Monsieur Day. But the language that God uses to speak to Israel is the same language that a Jewish groom will say to his bride in the vows. And it says this in Exodus 6, it says, I am the Lord, I will bring you out, I will free you, I will redeem you, and I will take you as my own people. And so when we hear deliverance, they would have heard proposal. They would have heard proposal that God is like, I want you as a people. I want to be so wedded with you. I want to become one flesh with you. I want to become so in union with you that is in a way that's permanent, a love that is not fading, a love that is not going anywhere. In Ezekiel 16, listen to this. This is to me probably the most, if you guys get bored with reading your Bible, just read Ezekiel 16. It's probably the most rated R version of the Bible that you'll find, but I only put the like PG-13 versions in it for you. You can go read the rest, cliffhanger. All right, I made you flourish like a plant on the field and grew up. This is, God, this is God talking to his people through the prophet Ezekiel. God says to Ezekiel, hey, I made you flourish like a plant. And he's talking to all of Israel. You grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown. Yet you were naked and bare. And when I passed by you again, I saw you. Behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you. And I covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and I entered into a covenant with you declares the Lord God, and you became mine. I bathed you with water, and I washed you off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly, he sounds such, like such a craftsman 
hipster right there. Um, You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I bestowed upon you, Missio Dei. Every single one of you, he bestowed splendor on you. That's what he says. Imagine that. Can you receive that this morning? That I had bestowed upon you declares the Lord your God. God looks at you as this this, this person that he wants to have such intimacy with that it makes the marriage covenant look like child play. And he's so consumed, and he loves you. And not only does he love you, he likes you. Some of you have heard he loves you so much that it just sounds like Woodstock from, you know, the Peanuts um, cartoon. Wah, 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 wah. He likes you. He likes you. And so when we talk about love, there's a lot of wrong things about the way I think our culture talks about love. Most of us will fall in love a few courses uh, times in the course of our lifetime. Falling is the main way we talk about our experience, as if we're just some guy walking down the street, and then there's a sinkhole, and he falls. That's love. We talk about all these other words we use for love. Falling is not jumping. It's accidental. It's uncontrollable. Something that happens without consent. This is the main way we talk about relationships, and most of the metaphors we use to talk about love are a problem. We talk about falling in love, being struck, crushed, we swoon, we burn with passion, love makes us sick, and our heart aches, and then we break, right? These metaphors, if you think about them, are all extremely violent, or all have to do with being sick, (laughs) (laughs) And I get what they're getting at. They're talking about more of the pain of dividing from love. Even the word smitten comes from the word smite in the dictionary, defined as grievous affliction or very much in love. And so we come to talk about love with such great pain and suffering, but when the scriptures talk about God's love with us, it talks about covenant. It talks about commitment. It does talk about God's passion talks about his intimacy. And so God's love for us is this sense of covenant that when you have God's love, nothing in this world can shake you. When you have God's love, it doesn't matter who is against you because you have him and his love and it makes you secure. Um, let me just break it down like this to you. In marriage, if, Ash, if, I, if I were to leave here, let me just say this first. If I were to walk out of here and, and some of you are like, Brian, you're such a nice guy. You're so, you're so kind and um, actually, actually, Ross said you're, you're charming today to me. Thank you, Ross. I appreciate that. I, pre- I received that today. And I walk up there, and you know what I think automatically when he says that? I was like, yeah, you really don't know me. You, 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 that's who I am because I'm a pastor. I kind of learn how to put, you know, be nice and do this pastor thing, but you really don't know me. And then, but if my wife were to look at me and say, Brian, you're the, the kindest guy, person I've ever met. If she would say that, if she would say that, (laughs) I could, every single one of you could say you hate me and don't, don't like me, and I would walk out of this place with confidence. But if all of you say I'm charming, all of you say I'm the nicest guy, but she thinks I'm cruel, I'm broken. Because when you have that kind of covenant, when you have that kind of person who sees you at your worst, who sees everything of you, and still sees through everything and still loves you, still is committed to you, that's the kind of covenant love that God has with you. And when you have that kind of love with God, 
when you can be in relationship with him and have his security and have his love and not work for favor but work from favor, not work for security but from security, that's the kind of love that no one can take away. That's the kind of love our city needs, and that's the kind of love that we all long for. But the Bible doesn't always say that we have a marriage. The Bible says we have a bad marriage with God. So the scriptures will go on, and it will go on to say that this marriage, God will use this metaphor, and he will use this metaphor to say not only is it a marriage, but it's kind of like an adulterous marriage. And he'll use this metaphor throughout his stories in, 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 in prophets. One is Hosea chapter 1. God tells this prophet to go marry Homer. Um, uh, Gomer, sorry. <laughs> I said that wrong. Gomer. Um, it says, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land, Israel, is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And so scriptures will continually use this metaphor that not only, that it, 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 basically we are an unfaithful bride and God is a wounded lover. And that yet, even though he's wounded, he continually loves us repeatedly. Repeatedly. God has used a human marriage to show what his people are like, and he tells this prophet. And, and this is probably a little more prophecy than we like. This is crazy. But he's, Hosea would have thought, God, you are nuts. Am I hearing you correctly? This is the woman for me? She's going to betray me, and you want me to marry her? She's going to break my heart? Hosea's wife was adulterous. She cheated on, on Hosea, and God is saying, this is his people are like we are spiritually adulterous. That this, and, and this is, goes back to the very beginning of the message, that without this kind of correction, we, we, we need this awareness that this is possible. He says, that, he says that she's cheated on you, and God is saying, this is like my people. That's what rebellion is. It's loving something more than God. It's cheating on God. And we all know like, what sexual addiction is. It's that false intimacy that comes with like, sexual practices that don't satisfy. And God has the audacity to say that if you make anything more important than me, you are doing the same thing with your soul as a sex addict does with their body. You are giving your all to something, and it is your lover, but that lover despises you. They can't fill you. They can't bring fulfillment and flourishing. So we are all, what Scripture calls us is idolatry, that we are all worshiping something. One of my favorite authors is a non-Christian, David Foster Wallace. Any of you heard of David Foster Wallace? He says this, um, I think this was at a graduation commencement speech. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody's worshiping. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship, worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. When time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid. You will never need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid and a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on and so on. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. And so we all have this sense. And what God, I think in this imagery, 
I want to make a distinction, real, a little caveat real quick. All throughout this, as I've been studying this imagery and just obsessed with looking at this imagery through Scripture, I see kind of two things going on as he calls us the bride. One is there's things that we've done and are doing, and we're taking good things and making them ultimate things. And God has this sense of, like, righteous thing that says, you belong to me in a rightful way, and it breaks my heart to see you take these good things that I made for your pleasure and make them ultimate things. It breaks me. It hurts me. And, and, and that, that, that sense of jealousy that we feel when it's like, oh, that person's more beautiful. I wish I had that. That person has more of this. I wish I had that. We're jealous in, the, in, a, in a human way of where we're wanting something that's not rightfully ours. But God is like this sense of jealousy where he's wanting us, wanting what is rightfully his, his creatures. And he want, he's like, I want you. I want you so badly. I don't want you to make this good thing into an ultimate thing. I don't want you to take money or sex or power or, or take these good gifts like a marriage or, or, or children or, or, or resources I've blessed you with and make them the most ultimate thing. And so in one sense, he's trying to do the course correction of giving us the resources to see our heart is the issue. Our heart goes astray. It rebels. And the other thing I think he's doing we're going to get at is God is continually showing this passage that he wants to bestow beauty and splendor upon you as his bride that you are well-suited for him, and that the issue for some of you is, well, it is this thing, but there's this something else, this sense of shame, the sense of shame that we experience in life, that it's not something that you did that was wrong, but something was wrong done to you. And the difference between, really, if you could say on this side of idolatry, there's really a good sense of guilt. Guilt is good. Guilt is saying, I did something wrong. Shame is over here is saying that, like, even though I may have done something wrong, it is saying that I am bad. Not that I did something bad. And sometimes that shame comes just from like really silly stuff from our childhood. Um, and we believe, we, when, we, when we are in that place of shame, we put limits on God's love. Ashley talked about this, that we put conditions on God's love. We will not, we basically, that shame causes us to push away the lover. And so it's this weird relationship. I remember as I was sitting here um, worshiping, I wasn't planning on sharing this, but it just overcame me as I was thinking about just like, when was the first moment I felt shame? Um, and I was thinking back to like when I was like five or six. Um, I had, it's so, so embarrassing to even say, but I had like a problem with like wetting my bed as a five or six year old. And I remember that and just feeling like, man, what is wrong with me? Why can't I why can't I live right? Why can't I be this right kind of kid? Why can't I? And so it just kept happening for a couple of years, around like five, six, seven. And I remember crying in my bed at night, like making up these songs about how no one loves me. And I remember my mom coming in, and she just like grabbed me. She's like, what do you do? She finally, she, luckily she heard me. <laughs> and she, 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 she heard that song, and she, she held me and says, like, you're loved. Like, I, we love you. And I share that because some of you, well, all of us, we live in this place where we, we, we feel like we are bad, that we are unlovable, not because of something we did wrong, but just because of our circumstances, just because of our comparison, just because of our, 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 our shortcomings or defects. And God's like, no, I, will, I, I don't want you to push away my love. As a, as I, you're this person that I is so wedded to, so united with, that I want to display, put splendor upon you. I want to put beauty upon you. 
I want to lavish you with grace. I want to lavish you with my love. I don't want you to reject and push away my love and become, you're not a victim. In that moment, I was victimizing my own self. He's like, you're not a victim in the kingdom of God. There are no victims in God's kingdom, only brides, only people who are wooed and loved and cherished. And so what Jesus does is he He's, the two things that we talked about, love, are these like words of violence and sickness. But God's words, two words, is commitment and passion. And you need to hear that. Some of you are trying to uphold hold your commitment to God. You're like, you, your flawed commitment is what you are trying to do. And God's like, I don't love you because of your flawed commitment to me. I love you because of my, flawed, my flawless commitment to you. You are not upheld by your flawed commitment to me. You are upheld because of my flawless commitment to you. That I'm so committed to you that you don't have to be upheld by your resolve. You're upheld because of my resolve. Because I am so committed to you that I gave my life for you. That's what Ephesians, pull that passage up. Um, Next slide. It says that he gave himself up for her. That word gave in the Greek is this word of like... um, it's the perfect tense. That means it's a one-time action and has ongoing ramifications, all right? So it's a reference to him dying on the cross, that he gave his life for you on the cross. Remember there's this, this, this man, this criminal who was like so, uh, maybe he was a, a, a real criminal or maybe he was just caught in the broken, oppressive system of Rome and not a criminal, but he looks at Jesus and goes, you're the one. Will you remember me? You're the Messiah. And Jesus goes, remember you. You'll be with me in paradise. You'll be with me in the beautiful place. And he said, I give my life for you. I give my life for you. That word gave is one-time action. It was true for that criminal, and it's an ongoing ramification that's true for you today. Um, Let me explain it this way. Uh, Marriage is a one-time action that has ongoing ramifications. Let me give you one more example that will hit home. Children. One-time action... (laughs) ongoing ramifications. You get it now? That Jesus is, <laughs> yeah, I don't got it. <laughs> Jesus' death on the cross for you, it was his way, when he died, he saw a wedding. In John 2, Jesus chose his first miracle. He could have done so many things for his first miracle. He could have raised someone from the dead. He did that later with Lazarus. He could have healed the sick. But his very first miracle, he chooses to turn water into wine. One, because I think Jesus is really fun. Loves to party. Number two, I think this. I think wine in the Old Testament is symbolic for joy. All throughout, you could do a whole word study on it. Every time you've seen wine, it's symbolic for joy. And they're at this wedding, and Mary, his mom, comes up to him and says, Jesus, the wine has run out. And at that party, there was no joy. And so what she's really saying is, the joy has ran out. Some of you, just a side note for Mary, like, you know exactly what that means. The action step for you today is to go like, our wine has run out. We We need to, like, restore the joy of the Lord. But anyway, so this joy has run out. And Jesus, when she says, do this miracle. Turn the water into wine. What does he say? My hour has not yet come. That word hour all throughout the Gospel of John references his cross. So what is he thinking? He's saying, my, this is not my wedding. 
He says, this is not my wedding. My wedding, this reminds me of my wedding, but this is not my wedding. My wedding's going to come on the cross where I'm going to finally wed myself with my people. And, G- and, in, and then when Jesus dies on the cross, this thing happens later on in Revelation where it says that we are coming to a wedding feast. And that wedding, that wedding anytime you go to a wedding, it, it's a reminder of God's love. And on the cross, He's not beautiful. He's scarred. His face is no longer recognizable. And we know that because he, the cup of death that he drank, he receives us no matter what we've done. We're like those empty jars at that wedding that were water waiting to be filled. And the Bible closes with a beautiful wedding in heaven, something beautiful as it speaks of Jesus as the groom, and we as his followers. And it says this in Revelation 19, Hallelujah. Our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. It's a reference to Jesus. And his bride, us, has made herself ready. She's wearing fine linen, bright and clean. So what does that mean, church? You need to go out and you need to go get clean. You need to go get the best dress. You need to do all this work. No. All of that fine linen and bright and clean, it was given to her as a gift to wear. It was given to her as a gift, it says, that God bestowed beauty upon you, that in the cross there was nothing beautiful upon him. But he looked at this criminal and says, you're going to go with me to the beautiful place. And you're, what I love about Jesus is that beauty always demands hope. And he looked at that person, and not only does he see us in our idolatry or in our shame, he looks at us and still sees beauty. He still sees beauty. And he calls that beauty forth. Um, some of you have probably uh, been to weddings before. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but I think no matter how much technological advancement we have, the rehearsal s- dinner slideshow is never going away. <laughs> it's like it will always be there. And it always starts out the same. There's a little bitty girl and a little bitty boy, and then they're like two, and then this one gets four, and then six, and then you get to middle school, and you're like, ooh, <laughs> awkward phase. And you know, and you know what's never in those slideshows? Ex-boyfriends and girlfriends. They're never in there. Because we know the end of the story, right? We know this, this couple finally gets together, that they become one. We know we're there, and we know the end of the story. What God is saying is that we know the end of the story, that every single one of you is going to meet spotless bride, pure and holy and perfect. In some God supernatural way, you are already that. And God is saying, become who you already are. Become who you already are. All of your past, all of your past is edited out of the beautiful show that I'm doing here. It's completely gone. It's edited out of the picture because you are a picture of heaven and you should become who you already are. You are the bride of Christ. Whenever I do a wedding, I usually, um, it's amazing because I get to see, I have the best view of the whole show. I get to see the bride and the groom and I usually look at the groom and I usually let her know that as great as you look today, um, I usually say something like, as you enter this room in the pure white dress, we too one day will enter in God's presence, edited of all of, our, all of our waywardness, all of our shame, all of our guilt. And as great as you look today, we will stand before God in such beauty that it will make these clothes look like rags. 
Because God looking down on the cross into our marriage, if he would stay and stick it out or leave, he is a God of permanence. And he saw what he was being wedded to and he chose to stay. He saw everything about you and he chose to stay. He stayed committed to us and he has no illusions about what he's committing to. So you don't have to put on any mask. He has no illusions of what he's committing to with you. He is the perfect lover, and he died to make everything beautiful in his own time. And so God sending his son, if he would stay or go, he stayed into this marriage with us. Jesus gave selflessly. He forgave willingly. He died sacrificially. He loved unconditionally, and he laid his life down willingly. And that's the kind of love that you and I are committed to. Now let me just give a little practical on the idolatry thing. How do we keep our heart from idols? How do we not become our own internal versions of the stories we shared earlier? How do we do that? Because let's be honest, we're, we, we have the capability. Um, how do you do that? Do you, do, you look at the, do you look at the idol that's in your life and you're like, oh, i got to get rid of this thing. What do I do? What do I do? Um, a few questions to help you with your identify. What do you daydream about? thinking about your idols. What do you daydream about when there's nothing else to think about? Um, where does your mind go effortlessly? Uh, if you follow the, another question is, is if you follow the trail of where you spend your time and money, at the end of that trail, you'll find what you worship. Um, for me, I, I often daydream about uh, like writing a book one day. Um, and it's always like this book and on the back, it's got, again, N.T. Wright, giving me a great recommendation <laughs> that says something like, Brian's book is not good. It is great. It is the most astounding accomplishment of our time. No, but, and in, but what's behind that desire to the daydreaming about writing the book? I want to be loved. I want to be known. I want to be helpful. But deep down, I want, I want to be seen, Right? What do you daydream about? What is it for you? What is the things that you, 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 you daydream about that you think about? Another question is, what is your greatest fear? Are you, are you, what are you fearful that you'll lose that you'll just curse God if you lost it? Um, and then practically, how do we do this? How do we dismantle the idols? Um, I'll just use a quick movie illustration. We've been heavy on the marriage side, and I do want to give a caveat that Churches often idolize marriage and make it as if it's like up here. You can never overwant marriage or underwant marriage. Marriage is a beautiful thing, but it's not the most ultimate thing. And so there's other covenants throughout Scripture, covenants of friendship, covenants with Jonathan and David, a sense of permanency and fellowship and, and, and permanency and love. Um, but there's one, one movie that gives another friendship covenant, and it's Lord of the Rings, one that all of you are probably going to get. Usually you throw out a movie title and people are like, what is that? Lord of the Rings? It's like, it's like a low-hanging fruit for a pastor. <laughs> uh, it's, Bilbo has the ring, right? Bilbo has this ring. And he's, he's playing with it and he's trying to decide what to do with it. And Bilbo has to give up the ring to Gandalf. And Gandalf, Gandalf says, like, there's this ring. And he says, where's the ring? And then he goes, oh, it's in the envelope over by the mantle. And then Bilbo gets the ring out while he goes over there, and he goes, oh, and he starts petting it, and he starts stroking it, my precious. 
as I'm talking today, that's kind of what the sermon kind of feels like. You may have some anger rising up inside a little bit because you're like, as I'm talking about idols, you're like, ah, my precious, like, don't get it, right? And as he's stroking this, this ring and he wants it, Gandalf says to him, he says, maybe you should give that to me. And he goes, no, it's mine. He goes, I, it belongs to me. It's my, it's my precious. And Gandalf says, yeah, precious. He says, it's been called that before, but you've never called that before. And what does Gandalf do to help him get rid of the ring? Does he say, let me tell you a whole long exposition about how, how, how the ring just sucks. Let me tell you all about the horrible things about the ring. No, that's not what he does to help him get rid of the ring. What he does is, I really don't know what he does. He kind of, he gets big and tall, and then light starts to wrap around him, and his voice gets deeper, and he says, Bilbo, uh, Bilbo, I'm not trying to rob you. I'm not trying to hurt you. And his voice gets calm. He says, I'm here to help you. And Bilbo runs into his arms and hugs him. And that's what we must do. We must see the power. Band, you guys can come up. We must see the power of our God, the power of his love. We don't, we, the way you don't dismantle an idol is not like saying, like, I got to get rid of this idol, I get rid of this idol. You run into the arms of your God and you celebrate him and you have the joy of God restored to you. You run into his presence. You don't fixate on the idol. You fixate on him and his power and the light and his covenant friendship with you, his covenant love with you. And that will melt away all lesser loves. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. As we, uh, as we sing and worship and continue our service, Christine's going to come and explain communion in a bit and we're going to take communion and we're going to sing some songs um, before we do i'd love um, just to invite you into a time of self uh, evaluation and if you would would you just put your palms upward towards god not for me but for god just you meeting with him and um for some of you, uh, where are you? Um, for some of you, I feel like you're, you're in this place, that, that place of uh, not receiving his love. Not, he, he wants to love you, but you keep pushing him away because you like the way it feels to feel jaded. You like the way it feels to feel cynical. You like the way it feels to be in that place. Kind of like me in that, that bed in that moment where I'm just like, oh, nobody loves me. Nobody. It feels good to be in that place sometimes some, in a weird way. I don't know, that place of shame. And you're pushing God's love away. And if that's you, I just want to pray for you right now. Um, God, would you take your beautiful children, would you take your beautiful people right now and let them see the beauty that God has placed upon them? Would they see how loved they are and how perfect you made them in your image, God? That there is nothing they can do to run from your presence that your presence is running after them to let them know that they are beautiful and fearfully and wonderfully made. That they can just deconstruct these ideas they have about God 
that he's here and disappointed with you or that he's, um, he's got a frown upon you when you see him, but that is not the God we worship. Our God takes condemnation and makes it acceptance. He takes chaos and makes it peace. He takes sorrow and turns it into joy. So if that's you, would you just, um, yeah, today, I just pray that you'd, you'd press through to the other side. You'd press through and experience his love bestowed upon you today. Um, and others of you, uh, also just want to pray for those who, um, yeah, there may be some kind of, you recognize that there's a priority above God that you've placed in your life. And it's probably a really good thing, but you've made it an ultimate thing. I pray that God would just dismantle that for you, that he would show you that he is better and he is more loving and he will never fail you and you can trust him. That thing you're worshiping will fail you. Your money will run out. Your career will be done. Someone else will fill that chair. Your spouse will let you down. If it's marriage, it's longing to want someone in marriage. That's a good longing. God is faithful to his promises, but he wants to do something in you today. So would you just release that to him and surrender to him, trusting him and believing in God again. Holy Spirit, would you come in this place? Would you move upon your children? Would your Holy Spirit be free in this place to minister to us? In Jesus' name, amen.